Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. For years on this program, in homilies and personal discussions with parishioners, family, and friends, I have explained that there is no such thing as progress, that you can't earn anything, that nothing you have belongs to you. No one owes you anything, and even what you seem to have will be taken away. So give it away now because you owe God and your neighbor a debt you can never repay. That you are not a victim. On the contrary, you are the abuser and you should not keep tabs when you help others because your life does not belong to you. I have insisted that scripture is the pearl of great price the only treasure of value. It is so precious that any time spent talking about anything else is wasted breath. That is why people are sometimes nervous around me during coffee hour, let alone family gatherings. In recent years, I have directed my parish council not to use words like progress, success, legacy, build, or engagement during meetings or in printed materials and notes. I have doggedly acted out Pharisaism publicly so that with each breath when I preach the judgment forcefully, everyone present is certain that I am a hypocrite, so that on the off chance that anyone submits to the biblical commandment, They are absolutely clear that it is the righteous commandment that guides their steps and not my example. I have ridiculed the abuse, criticism, and disrespect of parents, evangelized by popular culture and Disney's children's sitcoms, not because our parents are good. No one, according to Jesus, is good but because, as the good book proclaims, whatever we are, we are no better, if not worse, than what came before us. I have ridiculed parents, too, because I am a Pharisee, and my job is to preach Psalm 78, like it or not. Richard and I have dismantled our culture, politics, identity, and ideologies of every flavor on this podcast. And still, people want to say, I agree with you, Father. Beloved in Christ, you can't possibly agree with me. Even I disagree with me. Only the dead agree with Scripture. One day, God willing, Richard and I will have a chance to read the book of Revelation on this program, a book that handles the function of the martyrs elegantly. In the meantime, with respect to our inability to agree with Scripture, we'll continue our discussion of the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, verse 28. You're listening to the Bible. 
as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 482 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about a biblical character whose name does not appear in the Lucan genealogy. Now, some people hearing this podcast may ask the question, on what basis would we raise the name Cyrus from the prophecy of Isaiah when Luke doesn't mention the name Cyrus? So I want to take a step back this morning, Rich, before we jump in and talk a little bit about methodology. The Lucan genealogy is a difficult nut to crack. People have spent a lot of time struggling and passing over this text because it's painful. That's why when you open a Bible dictionary, you come up with goose eggs. People don't know what to do with this passage. Just look up a name. What on earth does it mean when entry after entry after entry in the dictionary says an ancestor of Jesus? Why bother putting the name in the dictionary if that's all you have to say? So what we are trying to do on this program is what Father Paul taught us to do. We are going word by word, making the effort to understand the functional meaning of terms on the basis of language, syntax, and context. What is the functional meaning of the term with respect to its placement in the story? Words in abstraction as we've said many times, don't have a meaning. They have a function. We are looking at the root of each term in the original language and then making the effort to go to the stories that these roots appear in to see how they function in the text of the Bible. Then we're coming back to the Lucan storyline to see how they flow within his text. And once we know the functional meaning of the words in the genealogy within the storyline of Luke, then we're allowing our minds to stretch a bit. How might these words fit elsewhere? What other stories within the Bible do they bring to mind? How might these stories be functional in Luke? We can't say definitively that Luke was alluding to Cyrus, but we can say definitively what the names mean based on their roots in the original languages. And we can say definitively that these names are placed in the same period in the storyline, the Old Testament, as Cyrus. These are irrefutable facts. Now, what you do with those facts, how you arrange them, is up to you. But you're not allowed to disregard or deny those facts because they're inconvenient. What we are presenting here is one possible argument based on those facts. And we acknowledge, Rich, that the genealogy is a difficult text. Yeah, this is a very difficult text, and it's a strange text. I remember back in the day, back when I was in college, there was a kid who was leading a Bible study, and we we're just starting with Matthew. And, you know, he 
naturally went very quickly through the genealogy because it's really boring to do a Bible study over Matthew and the genealogy and et cetera. And so he just kind of waved his hand and just said, well, this is here so that we realize that Jesus was a real person and lived in a particular historical time. So now that we understand that Jesus is here, we all believe that because we're all Christians, let's move on to where it gets interesting. Okay, that was just basically how he put it. But then you get to Luke 3, and you realize that it actually is challenging that because it's not the same genealogy. <laughs> if you wanted to prove that Jesus is the same person, you have to show it's the same genealogy. I mean, this isn't really rocket science. You can go onto a genealogy website and you say, okay, my, oh shoot, I have a, a relative and his name is George Jones. Oh, darn it. How am I going to find which George Jones it is that actually is in my genealogy? Well, if you find a census record that says that this was his father and these were his children, you've got the right George Jones. But if they're different, it's not the same George Jones. So here we are with the same Jesus with a different genealogy. Shoot, Luke ruined Matthew or Luke is a fool. <laughs> I don't know which one it is. This is what's weird about this text. Or, Rich, there is the third possibility that Father Paul is right about functional meaning. Correct. We have to then take Luke 3 and say, what is it doing here? Why is it here? And what's the story it's telling? Okay, so how do we bring meaning to a list of names that we would prefer wasn't there? I mean, you could say, well, I wish it agreed with the genealogy of Matthew 1, but I just prefer it wasn't there. I mean, look how many episodes we've had to do over it just to get through it. I mean, it's really a hassle. It would be so much less of a hassle if it weren't here. So evidently, Theophilus needed to work through this hassle. And that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to work through this hassle. And how do we do it? We hear the names. We look at the etymologies, like you said, Father, and then we look to see, do we have other references to these in Scripture, and what stories do those evoke? If the story evokes a meaning from a Hebrew root, or you know some kind of function that it plays elsewhere in the Hebrew language, in the Bible, or if it evokes something about the story, we're going to go in there, and we're going to start making the connections that we can in order to figure out how Luke 3 actually give Theophilus something he needs so that he can believe, which is the whole point of Luke. We have his thesis in chapter 1. Why is Luke writing this thing? And these are exactly the things he needs to support his thesis. Based on what Luke is trying to do, which is in the text, this is what we need to do. And I just want to take a side discussion because this is one thing that I bristle against, is that, you know, I'm doing a Bible study and we're working through Hebrews 10 and 11, which are very challenging chapters, especially to people who a priori believe that there is no such thing as performing works for the sake of one's salvation, you know? And one person in the Bible study says, wow, Hebrews is taking it out of the realm of good and bad and into the realm of obedient and disobedient. And I said, yes. Then someone comes in and they say, but Romans says this, and Romans says this, and Romans says this, and Romans says this. And I say, well, Hebrews 10 says this, Hebrews 11 says this, unless your Romans reference is helping us understand Hebrews 10 and 11, I can't use it. I'm here trying to understand Hebrews 10 and 11. So that's always kind of the fence we try to put around this. If we see potential references, potential crossings with other texts, other words, 
How much is it helping us to understand Luke chapter 3? If it doesn't help us understand Luke chapter 3, we have to put it to the side because the subject at hand is this weird, difficult text. You cannot have a conversation with your mother and interrupt her with something your father said earlier. You can't play your parents off against each other. And I'm not entering into a side conversation with Western scholarship about who wrote which epistle. Forget about it. Don't go there. Paul wrote all of it. All of it is Pauline. From Matthew to Revelation, don't worry about it. All of it is under the auspices of Paul. All of this nonsense about who wrote what is nonsense. The point I'm making here is that you cannot play one epistle off against the other in order to get out from under the authority of the judgment that your mother is placing you under when she's scolding you. Yes, scolding you. That's what your students are doing unwittingly, because if you submit to the full statement of Hebrews and hear what Paul is saying in Hebrews, and you are patient with the text and take the time to submit to its instruction, and then you go back and hear Romans, you'll realize that Paul is saying the same thing in both letters to a different audience in a different situation with a different emphasis, but it's the same teaching. But you have to hear each statement separately because there are different themes, different circumstances. It's a different story as part of a broader storyline, but you can't play mom and dad off of each other. And yes, Paul can be your mother and your father. It's functional. <laughs> That's the point of the example. But we love to play this game of one text versus another so that we can emasculate scripture. It reminds me, actually, of an interview that I heard recently with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan. Jordan Peterson was saying something that Christians, especially the Orthodox, love to hear. But it's horrifying. He was presenting the Bible, and of course, for Jordan Peterson, the Bible is the King James Version of the Bible. Whenever people talk about the Bible and Western scholarship in conjunction with their civilization, they're talking about the colonial Bible. And what he was explaining is that the Bible is the underlying text from which all of Western literature comes, because it was the first book. And so the case he was making to Joe Rogan is that this means that the Bible is so foundational that it's more true than true. It's beyond true. It presupposes truth. This, my dear friends, is blasphemy. It is utter blasphemy. Because if you make the case that all of your literature comes from Scripture, not only is it nonsense, not only is it incorrect, never mind that he's ignoring the unvocalized Hebrew text or the Greek text of the New Testament. But there were multiple influences on your Western literature. Either way, 
the fact that he's trying to make the case is his attempt to say that your civilization is built, banah, on the word of God, which was given to tear down your civilization in your mind. Which means that Jordan Peterson is trying to build up what God in his scripture is emasculating. We're not allowed to build anything. That's why this expression, Bible-based, is not allowed by Scripture. Stop saying that your church or your theology is rooted or built or based in Scripture. When you talk this way, you are burying Scripture in order to build your civilization. You are burying Scripture in order to construct your idols made of stone. This is what we human beings do. When you quote this text and that text to make your argument against the basic point, Rich, that you were making, which is that Paul in Hebrews is challenging us that we have to submit and obey the commandments of God. When we quote one text against another text, that's exactly how Jordan Peterson is talking. All of literature is quoting the Bible. And Christians, especially the Orthodox, fall for it. When you speak that way, you are building and creating your own gospel. It is your word against God's word, which is an idol. So your students, when they quote Romans, are not quoting scripture. They are doing what a child does. They are speaking on their own behalf using the name of the other parent in order to emasculate and undermine the parent who is their judge. You cannot stand on the authority of your parent who stands over you in judgment. You cannot stand on top of Scripture. You cannot be Bible-based. At the end of 1 Corinthians, you are trampled underfoot by the Lord of glory. The son of Melki, the son of Adi, the son of Qosam, the son of Al-Madam, the son of Ur. There it is, Richard. The first name in verse 28 means my king. It's the central theme of the genealogy. Luke is canceling the king. And, of course, it's tempting in this culture of postmodern cancellation of our parents and our forebears, to imagine that the canceling of historical figures, of literary figures like Luke Skywalker, is somehow similar to what Scripture is doing. But it's not. The problem with canceling characters like Luke Skywalker or Obi-Wan Kenobi is that we do so in Western society the same way that Jordan Peterson claims that scripture is foundational in order to build ourselves up. In the Lucan genealogy, following the line of Psalm 78, your fathers were wicked, yes, but in order to emphasize that you are less than your fathers, 
if your fathers are wicked in scripture, you are also wicked. It's as though scripturally, your grandfather gets a B minus, your father gets a C minus, and you hearing the story now get an F. But the way that our culture functions, your grandfather gets an F, your parents get an F minus, and you get an A. And you have a new story in which you're the hero and it has no connection to the past because you're a god. That's what I love about scripture. <laughs> because in the Lucan genealogy, everybody gets an F. <laughs> so we have to train ourselves to be scriptural. The only one in scripture who gets an A is God the Father, and that's why he has to keep intervening in every generation. So right out of the gate, Richard, we're stuck with Melky. It's not good news. Yeah, and Melky is my king, but look at what came before my king. We have these references to Adi, which is ornament or jewelry, which often is used in context when a woman is trying to attract men and seduce them in negative context. So in Proverbs, you get this, and Ezekiel, you get this in 16 and 23. So you have this ornamenting of oneself. And then you have kosam, which comes from kosam in Hebrew, which is practicing divination, which also is used sometimes in these chapters because the idea of harlotry goes along with, how can I say, unsanctioned religious practices like divination, like worshiping other gods, like forcing God to speak when he doesn't want to speak, or not listening to what he already said when you want a different answer. That goes along with what you were saying before, Father, going with a different parent when this one isn't giving you the answer that you want. So we have those going into my king, leading into my king. Now, before that, we have El Modam, in Greek, it's El Modam. We're interpreting this as El Modad, which is a name that actually appears in the Bible. So it ends with a Dalit instead of a meme. So that's how we're understanding it. But this El Modad can either mean friend of God, God loves from the root Yadad, or it can mean God measures, which would be El Modad maybe, but it's from the verb Madad to measure. So either God is measuring or God the friend. I think the friend fits better in this context because of the harlot trying to make friends, put it that way. So this corruption is beginning to happen. And before that, we have ear in Greek, which comes from Hebrew ur, which means awake or arise. There is this wakefulness, but then it deteriorates again from this wakefulness through the love of God, but then looking for these other lovers. It sounds a lot like what one reads in Hosea, for example. And then you end up with my king which sounds so much like Hosea chapter 7, where we have the overheated king and court who love to drink and get themselves all worked up with lust, and they end up going after other gods, and then they go into divination and that sort of thing. It happens specifically in the court. So through association with these names, it seems that there's a story that has been repeating over and over about this continuous deterioration of kings, of human kings. And that's why ultimately we have to end the line by saying, you know what? The line's going to end with Herod. Or God can say, you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing and Jesus is going to be my son. It also calls to mind Ezekiel 
chapter 16, especially the reference to ornaments and jewelry. I mean, the reference to Hosea that you raise is, to my mind, technical, especially because of the reference to divination. But these are also universal themes with respect to the king's court, because kings are cowards. As in Isaiah, when Ahaz shakes in his boots, it's just like a stockbroker who wears a pink sock because he's worried about his profits. Superstition follows the powerful and the wealthy because they want control over their fate instead of trusting in the Lord. I mean, these are typical themes of the powerful. The king who wants to look powerful is obsessed with jewelry and wealth is superstitious, he trusts in diviners and false gods, practicing divination, which is forbidden in Deuteronomy. It's typical themes, Richard. It's just classic scripture. And then suddenly there's this reference to the friend of God, the one whom God loves, potentially a reference to the southern tribes. And then Ur pops up. And you know, what comes to mind is also this teaching in Ephesians where we are commanded to awake, arise, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. Hear scripture, hear the commandment. It's this vacillation between those who wield the power of death, the king, and the hope of life which comes from God's instruction. That is the generational swing that keeps happening. You have God the Father coming with his instruction, which ultimately Jesus is the one who brings this instruction and dies so that this instruction can be passed on. And you have these kings who keep fighting against this instruction. Jesus is not the first person to bring this instruction to the sons of Israel. Christians like to think so because they have the same problem as Disney-watching Americans. They really believe that if we just kill Luke Skywalker, now we're it. That's the problem with American society. It's not that American kids are wrong when they point out the flaws in their parents. It's that they believe that they're better than their parents. That's the problem. And this is what Luke is exposing. It's scripture that's better than the lot of us. And that's what we have to wake up in the spirit of Ur's name. We have to rise from the stupidity of submitting to the wrong instruction, the wrong reference, so to speak. This is how we have to understand this. I'm going to quote from BDAG, which is one of the premier academic lexicons for biblical Greek. And if you look up Kosam in Luke 3.28, then you get Kosam in the genealogy of Jesus, Luke 3.28. That's what you get. Here's what you need to realize. That's a terrible name to give a kid. If this is really about what this kid in my Bible study said back in the day, like you're going to name your kid Divination and you're an Israelite king before the return to the land, before Shaaltiel and Zerubbabel brought the people back. Did some Babylonian give you this idea to give this name that this would be a good idea? Because evidently someone was giving you a terrible idea. If this is 
actually the name that you gave. No, let's say you wanted to build a story. Let's say you build a story. I they, don't know, okay. Rich. Rich, I like the name. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> when we had children, Allah and I had an agreement. She said, I love Arabic names. Give the kids Arabic names. Just don't use consonants that Americans can't pronounce. <laughs> That was hard, but I went for it. But I like any name that begins with a cough or an ein. So technically, this verse is very exciting for me. <laughs> well, Greek helps with your wife because it eliminates the cough and makes it just a plain old cough. That's why Father Paul prefers the Old Testament. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so we have this name. You could even build a story and say, okay, they were in Babylonian captivity for several generations, right? This is just a few generations before they were brought back. Okay, so maybe the king of Israel was naming their kid after, you know, a shopkeeper that they liked in Babylon. So you're going to use a Babylonian name to talk about divination as the great idea for the next heir of the throne of Israel? I mean, there's no way to get out of it. It's a terrible name. And so we have to understand this somehow. Normally in the ancient Near East, the way you build a name is you say a God or whatever name of God you want to use, whether it's the Lord, but not an Israelite, you can use other names. You can use Baal as a name. You know, we have names like El Modad, which has L in it. We take it for granted. We have El. We've had Yo or Yehu or something like that in names, which is the name Yahweh with the Lord. You know, that's just how you do it. But you can put Baal there. You can put Marduk there. You can put whatever God you want in there. That's the kind of normal syntax of ancient names. And we have records where we have contracts and we have people's names. Like we know that this is how you actually made names. Now, sometimes you could shorten it by not putting the God's name in there. It's like in Arabic, you have certain phrases where you say, may God protect, and you would use God as you said it. You might want to just leave it out and just say, may he protect. There's different phrases. There's different ways of doing it, but it's the same meaning. Okay. So if you wanted to put some kind of God's name in here, technically it's called a theophoric element. It's the name of a God that you put in there. I don't know where you'd put it in here for divination. It'd have to be some other God for it to make any sense. I'm harping on this point because if you are really serious about understanding chapter three, you do have to go name by name, word by word, and say, wait a second, really? The grandfather of my king is divination? And he named his kid ornament, like jewelry. They don't have good connotations in Hebrew. They don't function well. This constant repetition, Rich, this pressure of king and folly and then hope, the artificiality of the names, as you rightly point out, this pattern in the Lucan genealogy is a kind of anomnesis, a kind of persistent smashing of the idols in our head until finally you're left with a mental vacancy so that there's a possibility that the only thing occupying your thoughts is the teaching that Luke is proposing initially to Theophilus, the lover of God, at the beginning of the story. But there's also something ominous about it. It reminds me of that line in Proverbs where the Lord threatens because of the folly of those who refuse to heed his wisdom, his judgment, that there will come a time when people will call on him and he won't answer, where they will seek him and not find him because they hated knowledge. 
I mean, how many times, how many generations is God going to offer instruction, offer wisdom, offer knowledge, offer hope, only to be thwarted by people who prefer violence and sorcery and power and kings and warfare and stupidity. I mean, the cycle keeps repeating itself. And this is, I think, ultimately why the scriptural writers link the coming of Jesus Christ in the story with judgment, because there's an expiration date on human folly. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.